Australian MPs snub the chance to close the government's offshore centres for detaining asylum seekers and refugees. Improving the conservation and sustainable use of the marine biodiversity in the region is critically important. The Pacific celebrates agreement on high seas treaty as a win for ocean protection and later on... No matter what culture you are, it doesn't matter to come and embrace other people's culture. You know, we're all one. Pacific dance, language and culture celebrated in Auckland as Polyfest returns in full force. Australian parliamentarians have turned down a chance to close the offshore centres for detaining asylum seekers and refugees. The Labour government, supported by the Liberal Nationals opposition, easily defeated a bill called the Migration Amendment Evacuation to Safety Bill. Introduced by Greens Senator Nick McKim, the legislation was an opportunity to end the cruel treatment that has been meted out for nearly 10 years to people illegally trying to enter Australia by boat. The Human Rights Law Centre made a submission in support of the bill and its senior lawyer, Scott Cosgrove, told Don Wiseman what the bill could have achieved. The aim of the bill was to offer to refugees and people seeking asylum who are still trapped in Nauru and in Papua New Guinea under Australia's offshore detention policy, the option now to come to Australia after nine years um, of horrific treatment under that policy. As you and many of your listeners would know, in around 2013 and 2014, the Australian government forcibly transferred several thousand people seeking asylum to those two countries where they were held in detention. 150 of them are still there now. And in that decade, 14 people subject to the policy have lost their lives. Many of those were due to treatable illnesses and those are deaths that could have been prevented if the government had transferred to pe- people to Australia for urgent medical care. This bill would have offered an opportunity to, to end that decade of inhuman treatment. All right. Well, the, the Human Rights Law Centre, you had the option to put in a submission. What did you say? Well, the Senate committee looking at the bill opened up for submissions for two weeks. It had a very short turnaround time and it received um, submissions from the UN Refugee Agency, Amnesty International, lawyers, doctors, many others. And we at the Human Rights Law Centre put in a submission as well. And our submission really points to the absolute dysfunction of the pre-existing and current processes for transfers to Australia and the ongoing impact of family separation caused by the offshore detention policy. So the current Labor government had indicated when in opposition and during its campaign that it was going to do something about these offshore detention centres. Has it reneged? Well, the Albanese government in opposition supported previous legislation of this kind. And that was in the form of the Medivac legislation that was in place in 2019 and which required the minister in Australia to consider the uh, information provided by doctors in relation to requests for transfer to Australia for medical reasons. The legislation that was voted down this week is of a similar kind. It responds to the crushing impact of offshore detention on people's mental and physical health. Before the election, the Albanese government was campaigning on a platform of improving those processes for transfer to Australia. 
They also undertook to introduce stronger oversight and scrutiny of the conditions, including healthcare services in offshore detention. But that hasn't happened. They we're coming up on a year since the government came to office. That is clearly long enough. The people who are still subject to this policy have had almost a decade of their lives taken away from them. 150 of them are still there. And the government has even said publicly that it intends to have no one held in offshore detention by the end of this year. This bill would have been a opportunity for the government to evacuate those refugees and, and make good on that intention to bring this chapter to an end. So why do you think this legislation has been tossed out? Well, it's hard to look past the toxic politics relating to this issue in Australia, which has really loomed large over the last two decades. The bill was ultimately defeated because it was opposed by the government and it was also opposed by the coalition opposition. Ultimately, uh, I think it comes down to a matter of courage and political will. There is very little reason in policy that can justify what is continuing to happen in those two places. People were sent offshore originally in the name of processing, processing of their refugee claims. That's something that took place many, many years ago. In 2016, the Australian government agreed a resettlement arrangement with the United States. And as you know, more recently, a resettlement arrangement with the government of New Zealand. Those two things have provided some opportunity for hundreds of the people affected to get on with their lives in safety, but not for everyone. And there's still not a pathway for everyone. And in that context, it's simply a lack of moral courage and a reflection of the toxic politics on this issue that the major parties uh, have opposed this opportunity to uh, bring this horrific chapter to an end. What's the next move for the Human Rights Law Centre on this matter? Well, we're continuing to work with a large number of people who've been brought to Australia under the previous arrangements, and they have finally some access to a decent level of healthcare that they were denied for so long, and they're going about bringing about being able to get on with their lives. But as for the people who are still offshore, we hope that working with the United Nations High Commission for Refugees and the government of New Zealand, more and more people will be able to resettle in New Zealand from Nauru and PNG. But ultimately, that is not going to provide a solution for everyone. So we urge the government of Australia to take responsibility for this, take responsibility for something that all along has been Australia's responsibility and make good on its public intention to bring everybody off these two places of detention by the end of this year. After close to two decades of negotiations, an historic United Nations Ocean Treaty to protect marine biodiversity in international waters was agreed on this week in New York. The agreement, referred to as the High Seas Treaty, will allow marine protected areas, or MPAs, to be set up in international waters. It's been supported by Pacific leaders and environment-focused non-government organizations. Caleb Fotheringham has more. The treaty is in line with the 30 by 30 pledge made by countries at the UN Biodiversity Conference in December to protect a third of the sea and land by 2030. 
World Wildlife Fund New Zealand's Chief Executive Officer Kayla Kingdon-Bibb says the treaty is set to benefit Pacific nations. The ocean influences every aspect of life in the Pacific. It's central to culture and it sustains the well-being of Pacific nations. So what happens out in the deep sea is really significant and improving the conservation and sustainable use of the marine biodiversity in the region is critically important for intergenerational equity and sustainability going forward. Ms Kingdom Bibb says it will also mean commercial fishing will be better managed. The Pacific region's fisheries are a major source of income and food security for many Pacific island countries and territories. And the pathways set out in this agreement will help safeguard these species and their habitats and also assist in ensuring the sustainability of Pacific fisheries. Greenpeace campaigner Jessica Desmond says the treaty was the start of getting marine protected areas implemented on the high seas. We need to think of this as the first step. It's a great first step. It's a historic win that we finally have a way to create marine protected areas. And now we need to get on with the hard work of actually implementing those marine protections. Ocean governance expert Hugh Govan says MPAs are sometimes promoted as a cure-all for ocean problems, which was not the case. However, Mr Govan says if international mechanisms designed to protect the ocean were not working, MPAs in the high seas could be beneficial. In the high seas, if management is not being very effectively carried out, it may well be that marine protected areas are the best available tool and it might well help everybody if strict protection is is enforced on large sections of the high seas. Mr Govan says he hopes the strongest authorities on establishing the MPAs will be Pacific island states. At the moment, and in particular for tuna, it's the small island states that are carrying what we call the conservation burden of managing the world's tuna stocks. And the, the fishing that happens in the high seas is benefiting from this conservation without actually being part of the access fees arrangement. Ms Desmond says a network approach needs to be taken when establishing the MPAs, which includes taking into account migratory patterns. There's a risk where protections happen in areas that industry don't want to use. We've seen it happen where the fishing industry, for example, has said you can protect these areas because we actually don't want to fish them. That's not the approach we want to take. Lee Dedo Kana Singer led the organisation Pacific Network on Globalisation at the negotiations in New York. She says the agreement means Pacific nations will first need to be consulted if activities are taking place in the high seas bordering a country's exclusive economic zone. The proponents of the activities will need to ensure that whatever that happens in the areas beyond national jurisdiction does not impact the exclusive economic zones of Pacific seeds. Ms Dokana Singer says capacity building is required for developing countries so they could be part of monitoring MPAs. We have to remember, high seas MPAs are in remote areas, and they will need crucial monitoring and surveillance systems. And so these high-tech expensive satellite surveillance systems, if developing countries are to be part of this, then we will need capacity building. Pacific leaders have also praised the treaty. Cook Islands Prime Minister Mark Brown, in a statement, welcomed the conclusion of the negotiations and called for the adoption of the agreement to be fast-tracked. He says when the treaty is in force, ocean states will be further empowered to protect the high seas. There is a growing chorus of voices urging the Papua New Guinea government to abandon a proposed new media law. The proposal was announced out of the blue last month with a very short window for consultations, which was extended after complaints from local and regional media, academia and democracy advocates. 
I spoke with one of these voices, Dr Amanda Watson, a research fellow at the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, who points out the government's failure to identify a clear issue or problem that justifies the creation of such a policy. First of all, I'd like to say that it took me and others by surprise that there was a media policy emerging from the government of Papua New Guinea because as far as I was aware, there was no prior indication that they were working on this. Uh, And Papua New Guinea has always had quite a good media freedom, really. I mean, a fragile media freedom, perhaps we could say, but freedom of the media is protected in the constitution of Papua New Guinea and Papua New Guinea rates reasonably well in the latest Reporters Without Borders Uh, index, it's just outside the top third of countries. So that means it has relative freedom of the media compared to other countries, and to date at least. So what's happened is that the Papua New Guinea government put out a press release on the 6th of February announcing a draft media policy, and the initial consultation period was just 11 days long, which was very worrying. So that was the first part of the process was that those of us who were concerned about that were saying this is too short a consultation period and so on. So that was the initial thing that happened. Then the Minister for Information and Communication Technology, the Honourable Timothy Masiu, granted a week's extension. What I've noticed too, which is interesting, is that currently the submission form is still open on the Department of Information and Communication Technology website. So anyone can go to ict.gov.pg and submit their responses to the draft policy, which is really great. And the you've have you had a look at this and uh, what are some of the measures in it that are concerning for you? To be clear, the draft policy that I responded to and read and made a submission about was version one. The department has in very quick succession come out with version two and version 2.1. Yesterday, the department held a workshop. So on the 2nd of March, the department held a workshop at which they uh, discussed the draft policy in detail. What the Department of Information and Communication Technology said in the workshop on the 2nd of March is that they're going to create a third version, a third draft, and then they'll ask for responses to that third draft. However, I might just mention that a number of bodies are urging strongly for the whole process to be disbanded. And I certainly would take the view that there's no need for a policy. There's no problem that's been identified that needs to be addressed. Uh, And indeed, it's the preference of various entities who presented in the workshop yesterday and others who spoke, but including Transparency International Papua New Guinea, the Media Council of Papua New Guinea, the United Nations Resident Coordinator, and I would certainly agree with them. And there were other voices too saying we should not have a policy. Uh, So we're hoping that one possible outcome will be, rather than version three and four and five, that we actually uh, reach a point where there can be a agreement that there's no need for a media policy in Papua New Guinea. Um, I've uh, I spoke earlier to um, Professor Shalendra Singh at the University of the South Pacific, and he was alluding to sort of comparing Fiji's situation with its media act, and then also looking at the 
effect across the region of governments, especially through COVID being a lot more critical of their own media. What what are your comments on that? So Papua New Guinea has always had relative media freedom, but yes, the Fiji case did come up quite a bit in the discussion yesterday uh, at the workshop. So at the workshop in Port Moresby, the case of Fiji was mentioned another to- a number of times. It's quite interesting to see that the Fijian media sector has been working in a suppressive environment since their media decree was introduced in 2010. But since the election late last year in Fiji, the new government has announced a review of that exact decree, whereas now the Papua New Guinea government seems to be considering something along those lines, different but generally similar in that there are concerns about what it would mean for media freedom. So it's quite interesting how uh, Fiji, one Pacific nation, seems to be going in a positive direction in terms of reviewing a suppressive media act, whereas another country is talking about introducing one. So it seems like different countries are perhaps going in different directions. Let's say if PNG does decide it wants to go ahead with this, what would be the considerations that that you would advocate to be in such a policy? The first draft of the policy was quite broad and covered a number of things. So it's a bit hard to say um, what might possibly happen if they go ahead with a media policy. Uh, I still think the best scenario I think the best scenario is if the government drops the policy, that would fit in with the common practices in democracies and I think it would be best for Papua New Guinea's democracy. There's no need for a media policy in Papua New Guinea. There's no clear reason why it's needed. There's no statement of a problem it's addressing. Uh, If there was to be a new media policy in Papua New Guinea, I would be concerned about a few aspects, in particular the licensing of journalists and threats to remove those licenses. That is one of the main concerns. In the first draft of the policy, there was also mention of defunding of the National Broadcasting Corporation and an expectation that the NBC would generate its own funds and become self-sustaining. That wasn't mentioned much in the workshop, full-day workshop in Port Moresby, so I'm not sure if they're looking to remove that from subsequent versions of the policy. But certainly a lot of people have expressed concern about this licensing of journalists, and that would be one of the things that I would have a great lot of concern about if the Papua New Guinea government does look to move forward with a media policy. Business connections between the French Pacific and New Zealand were strengthened last week through a forum bringing companies from New Caledonia and Tahiti to Aotearoa. The forum, hosted at the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron in Auckland last week, is part of France's Indo-Pacific strategy for its companies to form new partnerships with other Pacific countries. A total of 20 companies from New Caledonia and 20 from French Polynesia met with 48 New Zealand companies. French Minister Delegate for Foreign Trade Olivier Dech, who hosted the forum, says France is here to help economically develop the French Pacific territories and use the Indo-Pacific for its territories to develop. He spoke with Jan Kohos. So um, I was just wondering, how did the business forum go? 
and was there much participation and is there any new development or outcome? Well, I, I think first of all that uh, this uh, French Pacific Business Forum was a success. Uh, it was the first time uh, that we can have a meeting between uh, companies from uh, French Polynesia, New Caledonia and uh, New Zealand. Uh, we had uh, 50 uh, companies from uh, New, Polyne uh, New Caledonia and French Polynesia present here uh, in, uh, in New Zealand. Uh, and I think uh, there is a strong ties already between uh, those firms. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, it's uh, just a, a start uh, for these relations. Uh, and I hope uh, this is the first step uh, and uh, there will be uh, much more uh, in the next years. And what did you think about, um, what did you talk about with the South Pacific Employers Representative? Um, we talk about the integration of uh, the French territories in the Indo-Pacific area. Um, there are more than uh, 2 million uh, French citizens uh, living in the Indo-Pacific uh, and uh, we wanted that uh, this um, zone, uh, which is uh, uh, the most uh, powerful uh, economic area in the world, uh, will be for uh, the French territories an area of development. Uh, today, we have relations between New Caledonia and the French uh, metropolitan uh, area. We have relations uh, between uh, French Polynesia and uh, the uh, French uh, territory uh, in Europe. Uh, and then we wanted uh, more exchange between these territories, the French territories in the Indo-Pacific and the other countries of the zone. Right. And uh, uh, that can be off the record. I wasn't sure if I, I was meant to ask you that. But um, what are your thoughts on French Pacific territories yeah. uh, gaining more autonomy in the region economically yeah. with the Pacific Island Forum? Well, it, it, it's, uh, it's a very good thing. Uh, of course, uh, the French territories, uh, as uh, New Caledonia and uh, French Polynesia, have an autonomy in the economic fields. Mm. It's their skill uh, to act uh, in uh, economy and uh, to act uh, in foreign trade. Uh, so, uh, in our discussion, um, we uh, with New Caledonia and with uh, French Polynesia. Uh, I just ask it what is their strategy uh, to have more export uh, and more exchange uh, with other countries uh, of the zone. And the French government is here to help them uh, to develop uh, their relations uh, between uh, uh, them and uh, the, 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 the counterparts here other countries uh, in the Pacific area. Okay. And are you, so uh, what kind of plans do you have to, to make them more autonomous in the future? What kind of uh... Yeah. Um, as you know, uh, the autonomy of the territory uh, are uh, described by the French constitution. So uh, we respect uh, the law 
uh, we respect uh, the constitution. Uh, for New Caledonia, uh, we had uh, three referendums uh, about uh, independence. Uh, in a process uh, was described by the French constitution, the three referendums uh, said no to the independence. Uh, so uh, we also have to respect uh, the democracy, and now we have to uh, uh, to imagine a, a new way uh, for New Caledonia uh, in order to have peace, security, prosperity in the island, and uh, with the island, uh, with uh, other uh, countries in the region. In one of Rarotonga's main harbours, Raka, made from all traditional materials, set sail for the first time. The project took four months to complete, with over 50 people helping over the course of the build. The leader of the project says nothing ties Cook Islanders more strongly to their culture than the Raka. Caleb Fotheringham has the story. After four months' hard work, nine canoes from the Tamana Ote Vaka project set sail to the sound of traditional drumbeats ringing across Rarotonga's Avaroa Harbour. The project was done in collaboration with Cook Islands Voyaging Society and master carver Taonga Mike Tavioni, who led the build. Taonga says the project was designed to teach as many people as possible the art of making traditional vaka. There's nothing else that ties us more strongly to our culture than the canoe. Without the canoe, we could not discover these islands. Without the canoe, we cannot feed our people. Our people are nourished from the ocean, the lagoon, reef and ocean, not from the land. Novice vaca builder Oliver Alders says using the traditional material was an eye-opening experience. We husked the coconut, bit up the husks and then buried it in the sand on the high tide mark and then we had to wait three months for that to rot in the sand and then that's when we dug it up and then the ladies all started making the car and that's what we used to lash all the canoes all the manus and all the gunnels all the chattels yeah everything Mr Alders says although modern rope is stronger the traditional kaha was easily strong enough to build seaworthy canoes he says it was a special day seeing the vaka work successfully because it was the first time that I'd ever um built any vaka. Sometimes I didn't really understand how it all worked. You know, as you do, you just like put the trust in your teacher and just doing what you're told and as you progress you just see it all coming together. Addressing the crowd at the sailing ceremony, Dr Evangeline Daniela Wong from Cook Islands Voyaging Society says the project was about ensuring the practice continued into the future. Working together and building these types of canoes is about ensuring our traditions, it's about ensuring an art form that actually, if we don't preserve it, we are going to lose it because there are very few people doing this now. And by doing this, we ensure that things continue. Mrs Daniela Wong says like any big project, this too had its challenges. Perhaps one of the biggest things that our old knowledge teaches us is skills like perseverance, commitment, grit, working when you've got nothing, working in the hot sun and actually being able to get through many different things. Taonga Tavioni says he now wants to see the vaka get used for fishing. With rising prices in Rarotonga, he sees the canoes as a tool for Cook Islanders to become more self-sufficient. Just 
teaching the art of making canoes and teaching the kids to sell them, as far as I'm concerned, not the real benefit. The real benefit is to show and demonstrate its ability to get food, to sustain family. Next Taonga says he wants to see the vaka be part of a traditional fishing competition. Hundreds and thousands gathered at the Manukau Sports Bowl for the Auckland Secondary School's Māori and Pacific Islands Cultural Festival, or Polyfest, which is the largest Pacific dance event in the world. It's the first time the festival has been held in full and open to the public since 2018, after years of disruptions and cancellations. RNZ Pacific's Susana Suisuiki was in attendance and has the story. For 48 years, the most recognised Auckland four-day event, Polyfest, has showcased traditional Pacific music, dance, costumes and speech competitions. It's a celebration of New Zealand's diverse cultures and youth performances, and the young attendees clearly embrace it all. Emma Mataya from Papatoitoi High School says no matter where you're from, Polyfest is for everyone. We would like to encourage everyone to, um, no matter what culture you are, it doesn't matter to come and embrace other people's culture. You know, we're all one. Luciane Patterson and Margaret Troon from Auckland Girls Grammar School say with Samoan and Tongan groups dominating the Pacifica space in New Zealand, it's crucial to have other Pacific groups present too. I think it's really important to me, especially with there not being like a Fijian stage, which is understandable because Fijians aren't Polynesian, they're Melanesian, but I think it's important that we still are able to showcase our cultures here. Four students who travelled from Hamilton say the event is an opportunity for them to strengthen their cultural identity. For me, it's more of a way to show appreciation for my culture. For most, I guess, it's, most people are like to fuck up to show that they're you know, from a certain place because they might think that others are, or they're not really well known. But um, I think being able to show where we are from, um, for example, wearing a Taovala just shows how much we appreciate our culture and how proud we are to be who we are. It's a draw card for politicians and local community leaders, even if they need a little encouragement to join in the spirit of the event. One, two, three. How's that? Polyfest is also on tomorrow, while the Māori stage will run from April 3rd to 5th, giving participants time to recover from February's Te Matatini Kapahaka competition. That's Tangata Ote Moana for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. If you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and we can you follow next time more.